Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into the $600 billion trade relationship that exists between the United States and Mexico. I am joined today by Ken Smith, Mexico's former chief negotiator of the U.S., Mexico and Canada trade agreement, and by the CSIS trade guys, Scott Miller and Bill Reinch. Ken, Bill, Scott, it is great to have you on the podcast today. And today we're going to talk about the $600 billion trade relationship that exists between the United States and Mexico. And just to put this in context, Mexico, not China, nor Canada, was the U.S.'s largest trading partner in 2019. And regardless of whether today Mexico is the U.S.'s number one, number two, or the third largest trading partner, the fact is that the integration between the two countries is such that whatever happens in Mexico will certainly matter in the United States. And to jump right into it, Ken, two years ago, Lopez Obrador signed on to the new USMCA agreement that you actually negotiated. But what we have seen since then is that he seems to be pushing towards a more inward-looking economic model, contradicting not only the spirit of free competition and free market, but also the compliance of Mexico within the USMCA. Can you please give us your take? Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much, Mariana. It's a real pleasure to be with you here today and with everybody. Well, one thing that is very important to take into consideration is that last year, when President López Obrador made his first trip outside of Mexico to the United States to meet with President Trump, it was precisely to celebrate the entry into effect of the USMCA. He clearly stated that the USMCA was a very important tool not only for economic integration in the region, but also to help Mexico come out of the economic crisis quicker. And so there was a full embrace, not just at that moment when the agreement came into effect, but the process leading up to the ratification of the USMCA by the new government in Mexico. It was overwhelmingly approved in the Senate, which is controlled by Morena, the ruling party. And so this message was very clear in terms of what the perception is of the Mexican government regarding the importance of the USMCA and the relationship with the U.S. Unfortunately, what we have seen in practice, and this is over the last two years really, is a movement in certain areas of the government away from this open environment, this open economic environment that has led to trade liberalization in Mexico over the last 25 years in different areas. Whether you're talking about policies that are being taken in the agricultural sector, where the agricultural ministry is promoting actively Mexican exports abroad in the full taking advantage of the USMCA, but while other areas such as the environmental ministry are moving actively against imports of uh, agricultural by biotechnology, trying to cut down imports of uh, glyphosate, a key product for Mexican agriculture. And at the same time, in other sectors such as energy, of course, the recent efforts to promote a bill 
on electricity that would, for all intents and purposes, begin the road of canceling Mexico's energy reform from 2013. And that allowed, as you know, public and private investment to come into the energy sector. So there is quite a bit of concern in Mexico in terms of what these mixed signals mean, because not only are they affecting our specific trade commitments within the USMCA and other trade agreements that we have, as a matter of fact, the government has come out and said that Mexico has no specific energy commitments in USMCA, which is completely incorrect. They do, and they have them also in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and in our new agreement with the European Union. So these mixed signals, are troublesome because they create uncertainty, uncertainty at a time when Mexico needs to be creating jobs and coming out of the crisis. And as a matter of fact, there is a possibility, I think, that now that the new administration is coming in into the United States, that a lot of the issues that the Biden administration is going to promote in terms of trade policy and with regards to the USMCA specifically may clash with some of the policies that AMLO is pursuing here in Mexico, primarily on the issue of enforcement of labor provisions in the USMCA, environmental provisions, which were not something that the uh, Trump administration really cared much about, and also this issue on energy, because the big center of attention in the United States, in my opinion, is going to be promoting clean energies, not only in the U.S., but regionally and worldwide. And that is something that this initiative on electricity in Mexico, which is actually unconstitutional, we can talk more about that, and it goes against our commitments in our trade agreements, really goes in the separate direction, right? We're not following the trends that exist worldwide in terms of the importance of moving towards cheaper cleaner energies, but we're trying to have some sort of return to the 1970s and policies where electricity is produced by the national company exclusively, you know, and under utilizing techniques for generation that are not clean, such as fuel oil and coal. So these represent a challenge. And I think the Mexican administration is going to arrive at a crossroads very quickly where we'll have to decide whether to really honor the USMCA, take advantage of it, or go in a separate direction for nationalistic purposes, but that may negate this unrestricted access to the markets of our partners in North America. Trade guys, will the trade policies of the Biden administration differ from those of the Trump administration? I would like, you know, just to remind you that Kamala Harris, while senator of California, actually she voted against the USMCA arguing that it didn't really include sufficient environmental protections. How do you see all of this that is happening in Mexico that Ken just mentioned? How will it be taken by the new Biden administration? Well, let me start with sort of some general perspective. Bill has spent a lot of time with both the transition team and incoming officials. I'll let him frame it in the context of the Biden administration. But look, Mexico has always had proximity And for a quarter century or more, it has had preference. It has a preferential access to the U.S. market. That creates major opportunity. Sometimes those opportunities are capitalized on. Sometimes they're missed. So it's not an individual. It's often a set of conditions. So, for instance, in the auto industry, the Mexican automobile industry is very strong because of NAFTA and now USMCA, because of its contribution to vehicle content in America. A former executive from uh, American Automobile Company, Bob Lutz, said that Mexico saved the American auto industry. He's gone that far. What he meant was NAFTA and 
and USMCA did. But at the same time, then Mexico built through its free trade agreement network, its platform to basically be the supplier to most of the hemisphere for certain automobiles. And it's a great job creator for Mexico. Now, if you look at a missed opportunity, Mexico, for its own reasons, chose not to join the first WTO information technology agreement and pursued its own path at that point because of the amount of assembled electronics that wind up in U.S. products for sale. That was an opportunity they missed and, of course, capitalized on it the second time by adopting ITA2. So it's always a tough pot choice for policymakers because there are reasons to do, do it both ways. But just because there's opportunity doesn't mean that we take the best advantage of it. I think that'll be true in the future as well. But Bill can comment on Team Biden and their approach. I think the new administration's approach is going to be focused on enforcement and enforcement of USMCA. If you listen to them talk, a theme running through all of their statements on trade has been the importance of enforcement. And it's not USMCA. It's not Mexico specific. It's a theme that, that runs through all of them. Uh, there's been over time criticism in Congress, particularly criticism from the left, which means a substantial part of the Democratic Party. The USTR negotiates agreements and then forgets about them and moves on to the next one to negotiate. And that there's nobody left who's actually watching to see what happens after it's been negotiated. That's an exaggeration, but it's been enough of an issue that I think you're going to see a serious focus by the Biden folks, both on, on enforcement of existing agreements and to the extent they ultimately negotiate new ones, which they've said is not going to be soon, a focus on getting into any new ones, more extensive enforcement language, which will probably be modeled after some parts of, of, of USMCA, particularly the labor part. Uh, with respect to Mexico in particular, I mean, it's, it's a special case in, in lots of ways. I mean, it's a special case economically, which Mariana and, and Ken, you've already outlined, and, and, and Scott, it, it's because of proximity. We have a very deep and broad relationship with them. The enforcement issue and, and the democratic issue has focused around labor and is focused around labor issues for a long time. Mexican companies' treatment of their workers and the failure from the democratic point of view of NAFTA to really uh, address the problems that were identified and the failure of the enforcement mechanism that had been established in NAFTA to actually produce any significant change. So as you know, as, uh, Vice President Harris notwithstanding, most Democrats supported USMCA, and they supported it, I think, largely because of the labor agreement. And I just throw in here, this is a, a really interesting case of, of how different groups played that issue differently. Richard Trumpkin, the AFL-CIO president, decided to play, uh, I think, a very careful sort of inside game, rather than simply oppose the agreement, which labor has done in the past, in other cases, he outlined what he wanted and he outlined specific attainable objectives. And the result of that was, in the end, he got a lot of what he wanted and he ended up supporting the agreement. That was the implicit quid pro quo from the beginning. You know, you change it the way I want it and then we'll talk about supporting it. And in the end, he did. Not everybody in the labor movement did, but the important ones did. The one key point, Bill, is that was the first AFL-CIO support for a trade agreement since the Uruguay Ground Agreements Act in 1994. One of the things I've written about is that there's been kind of a change of thinking, particularly in, in labor. They've spent years talking about what they were against. And with USMCA, they kind of pivoted and started talking about what they were for. And that's made a difference because they came up with specifics and they were able to accomplish them with the help of the House, with the help of Catherine Tai, who's going to go into the administration as US trade representative. Uh, the environmentalists played it differently. 
I think the environmentalists came out much more negative about the agreement from the beginning. And if you know Bob Lighthizer, and I've known him for 35 years, his, his attitude in, in that kind of situation is, well, you know, if you're going to be against it, why am I talking to you? You know, I have nothing to gain if you've already made up your minds. And that was the difference. Trump got a good bit because he didn't do that. He basically, he said, you know, maybe I can't be bought, but as John Bro used to say, I can be rented. And the result was they achieved some progress on the labor front. Now, for Biden, I think the issue will be turning that into actual change, you know, making sure that complaints are filed, because it is a process in which somebody has to complain. You know, it, 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 you don't just operate the process without without a complainant and without evidence. But, you know, they've got to get people to complain, and then they've got to use the process to achieve measurable results. That's where I think they're going to be focused. Ken, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how, what is the status of Mexico's implementation of those labor standards? Have we made any progress in that? You know, sort of what, I know you're very close to many companies that are trying to, very hard to sort of move forward in this implementation. What is the status of that? And also, if you can tell us a little bit more about sort of the reversals in the energy openness of Mexico. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, when it comes to issues such as labor and the environment, let's understand that the USMCA has the, the most advanced provisions of any trade agreement on these issues, especially on labor. If you talk to the to the Democrats that participated in the efforts to modify through a protocol the addendum that was negotiated on the agreement, you know, last year, and that led actually, I'm going to talk about 2019, that led to the approval in the U.S. Congress of the USMCA. New elements were included in addition to what was already the strongest chapter in any trade agreement, disciplines on union democracy that are very important. A mechanism was created on rapid response mechanism that actually provides teeth to the chapter. And let's not forget that both the labor and environmental provisions were uh, side agreements in the original NAFTA, subject to a different type of dispute settlement. So we have very much the state-of-the-art disciplines in the USMCA. And so companies in Mexico, knowing that this is a very politicized issue, especially on labor in the United States, and that there will be a lot of pressure from organized labor to initiate cases against Mexico, companies are preparing, doing internal audits. We have been helping many of them on this to make sure that many of the issues that they perhaps did not necessarily link in the past to trade agreements or trade policies, such as the union democracy provisions, are now taken very seriously. So, so hopefully Mexico will be in a position in, in case there are cases presented to make sure that the Mexican government through the Ministry of Trade and the Labor Ministry defends these cases in case that they do not have the supporting evidence to show that there is a sustained and, and recurrent violation of labor rights in Mexico, but also that companies can make sure that they are not subject or exposed to potential cases. So, so Mexico is working on that as well as the implementation of the labor reform. There was concern with the Democrats in the U.S. whether Mexico was dedicating enough of a budget to the implementation of the labor reform, which is in fact reflected in the labor chapter of the USMCA. This is still an open question because, you know, Mexico is implementing austerity measures throughout all of the government. So I think labor and the environment, as we have said, will be priorities for the US administration. 
And hopefully companies in Mexico will continue working towards ensuring that they can comply with, with, with all of these elements. Now, going back to the issue of energy, the concern with what has happened lately is that even though this electricity bill has been presented and it has been presented to the Congress under the form of what they call a preferential bill, which means that it must be considered in 30 days, it goes ahead of the line of anything else that is being considered in this session of Congress. Can you just give us a super brief explanation of what this bill consists? Yeah, basically, the bill itself, what it does is that it tries through the changes in the existing law on electricity, it changes the nature of how electricity is generated in Mexico and introduced into the national electrical system. With the energy reform of 2013, you had new elements of competition brought in into the national electric system that allows to create incentives so that private players can come into Mexico, invest in renewable energies, whether it's solar or wind power, and participate actively in the generation and sale of electricity from these uh, clean energies that are, in some cases, four to five times cheaper than if you're producing them through traditional means of fuel oil uh, and coal. And so the incentives were created within the energy reform to allow for these companies to invest in plants in Mexico. The new bill that is being presented reverses that because what it does essentially, it changes, for example, the order in which electricity is bought by the central authority in Mexico. The central authority still has a control of the distribution of electricity. So all different power generators contribute into the energy system, their generation of power, and the energy created from wind and solar power is being left behind. Essentially, you will not purchase the cheaper energy first. They go to the back of the line. This generates a problem because it will favor CFE, the National Electricity Company, in to continue to produce energy through the traditional means that are not clean. It also does away with the advantages of having clean energy certificates that were established in the, in the energy reform and that favor those power producers that are utilized in clean energies. And it does away with the requirements for CFE, the National Electricity Company, to purchase electricity through an open competitive bidding process. So it gets us back to a lot of the way things used to be in the past, because the National Electricity Company will have discretion over all, all of these processes, and it creates disincentives to continue investing in clean energy. It goes against the energy reform, so it's unconstitutional through a law to try to change elements that were changed through the Constitution in 2013. And it goes against our international commitments and trade agreements because it utilizes regulation and legal modifications to discriminate against private players uh, versus the national uh, state-owned company. And so all of these elements allow for private players from the U.S., Canada, or other places where we have trade agreements in the world to initiate arbitration procedures under the investor state provisions that exist under the USMCA, the CPTPP, and our agreement with the European Union. So this could set the ground for major disputes in the energy sector with our main trading partners if it's approved as it is. Hopefully over the next 30 days, cooler heads will prevail and the government will hear the voices of the private sector, not just the power producers, but also the users of energy because making energy more expensive for Mexicans 
hurts the competitiveness of all our productive sectors. I think that is really the point. In addition to breaching all the trade agreements, we will be increasing the prices of electricity, which will hinder the whole competitive of North America. And it's probably one of the reasons why the United States should care about this, in addition to protecting its investments. Scott, go ahead. Ken, as you were describing that, I'm thinking about myself as an electricity customer. I'm realizing, hey, this is, sounds like a government program. I pay more and get less. It turns out that's exactly how I described by America on the, the Trade Guys podcast. But So it, it does happen. But in, in this case with energy, it is an important and major reversal. I would just want to observe that with regard to arbitration, the NAFTA had a very strong chapter and was used quite frequently on uh, general investor protections. Protections were narrowed in the USMCA, but they still include the energy sector. So that's that's an important feature for investors who are looking for contract security and predictability. At the same time, arbitration, what, what we've learned over the years since the first international investment agreement in the 1950s is these things have the character of complex civil litigation with the additional feature that your counterparty is a sovereign. So they're not easy to win. They're time-consuming. They're, they're reasonably expensive to field. And overall, the complaining investors uh, tend to win less often than a coin toss. So it's not a short-term path to much of anything, but it does expose the issue in a format that, that provides eventual resolution for the investor. But it also makes a statement about sort of the level of, of sort of contract sanctity and, and willingness to live up to commitments. So I imagine there may be investor state cases, but there's certainly going to be state to state interaction on the topic. Well, and that's that I think is one of the, the longer term issues that's most important. And Ken uh, signaled this when he used the word uncertainty, which I think is one of the problems that we're going to be dealing with here from an investor standpoint. The last thing you want is not knowing what's going to happen next. Of course, you can never know perfectly what's going to happen next. But if any government is going to inject uncertainty into the process about what its intentions are and how it's going to play out, investors are going to sit on their money. And that's not good for growth. And it's not good for any of the things that we've been talking about. And it's not going to be good for the further development of the energy sector in Mexico. Totally. Ken, now that we, we went into the chapter of investments, can you just give us a, a picture of how is foreign direct investment in Mexico right now? Has it been, you know, all of the uncertainty that some of the policies and the decisions that have created, has foreign investment actually declined in Mexico even prior to, to the pandemic? How do you see that picture? Well, it is, it is interesting because it is a mixed bag. I mean, in, in certain regions of the country, you're still seeing the arrival of foreign direct investment and the commitment to continue to invest. For example, the state of Chihuahua continues to be you know, our top receiver of, of FDI. There are several projects that are being established in the north in manufacturing. But overall, and this was before the pandemic, as you well signal, there has been a, a dampening of uh, foreign direct investment in Mexico. You know, before the NAFTA came into effect, Mexico was receiving only about $2 billion worth of FDI every year. After 25 years of the NAFTA, by the end of 2018, this average yearly, yearly average was around $35 billion. And that is the result of the legal certainty in the long term of how the legal and regulatory environment in Mexico is going to be conducted and the level of integration with the U.S. And, and Canada. So I say it is a mixed bag because at the same time that we have had an economic crisis pretty much from the year prior 
to uh, the COVID crisis coming into Mexico. Let's not forget that we were pretty much in a recession throughout 2019 before the uh, COVID crisis hit. We had already seen a decline of more than 10% of FDI that year. We're seeing more or less the same numbers now, and it'll take time to recover. You know, at the same time, you have the USMCA into place, which is something that came in at a time that's very opportune vis-a-vis the crisis that Mexico was undergoing. In the second quarter of 2020, 20, we had a decline in our GDP of almost 19%, basically because of the shutdown of the economy, the uncertainty with COVID, and the disruption of productive chain supply chains throughout North America. We began to recover in the third and fourth quarters, and then the second COVID wave hit, which hasn't led to a complete shutdown, but it has led to quite a bit of uncertainty, not just because of COVID and what's going to happen in terms of the supply chains of North America, but in the long term, some of these policies that are dampening investors' certainty into what's going to happen in Mexico in the future. However, there's many sectors. If you look at the strong sectors in, in automotive, aerospace, electrical equipment, electronic, We're still seeing uh, investment commitments into Mexico, fueled primarily by the the hope that the USMCA will establish this certainty in the long term. But some of the specific policies that the government has taken uh, vis-a-vis the energy sector or agriculture are creating the sense that it is not so clear whether Mexico wants to continue to present itself to the world as a country that's fully open to investment. I mean, we believe that Mexico is still, in that sense, a reliable North American partner. I think that at the end of the day, there are voices in the Mexican cabinet, in the Ministry of Economy, in the Office of the President, and in the Foreign Ministry that understand the the importance of maintaining the strong relationship with the U.S. to the USMCA and strengthening our network of free trade agreements. You know, 46 countries with whom we have 12 trade agreements. So, So at the same time, I think that in the future, there could be more uh, of an attraction to foreign investment into Mexico if we take the right policies domestically. And that's a big if. Indeed. Look, this is a moment of opportunity. Okay. And as I see it, Bill and I have a different point of view on the strength of the U.S. economy in 2021. I'm I'm very bullish. I think we're about to enter sort of the the, the new roaring 20s, at least uh, at least for 2021. There's a tremendous amount of money that, that Americans saved and didn't spend during the pandemic, that it looks like it's it's going into housing and lots of other things. So once the spending begins, it's it's going to probably have a dynamic effect. You combine the the growth in the U.S. with the shortening of supply chains in general. The long haul globalization has been less of a factor. Regional networks, production networks, are more important. Mexico seems to me to be ideally positioned to pick up new investment and new production because of of your inherent advantages of location and and, uh, preferential access. So it's really, this is a moment to to reassure investors about contract certainty because I think industries, whether it's industries that want to reshore like pharmaceutical production or medical device production, or ones that just find a regional network more beneficial to them, Mexico seems to have a lot of advantages it could capitalize on right, right now. I'm not as optimistic as, as Scott, as, as he said, but I think if he's right, his logic is impeccable. I mean, it's a major opportunity for Mexico to further build the relationship with the United States and attract uh, more investment. I'm a little more pessimistic about what's going to happen here, particularly on the employment front, which is not directly related to what we're talking about. The, the signs are pretty clear that employment, reemployment, whatever word you want to use, is going to lag behind growth. I mean, it's it's obvious from a percentage point of view, you know, 2020 was so terrible 
that 2021 is going to look good, no matter how good it is, whether that's sustainable over the long term and whether people respond by opening their pocketbooks and, and, and restarting consuming, I think is too soon to say. If I may add something, Mariana, I think that one of the things that is worth noting is that one of the advantages of the USMCA is that as opposed to the original NAFTA, when it was all about eliminating tariffs, here we are talking about taking advantage of you know technological improvement, eliminating non-tariff barriers, obstacles on the regulatory front, and really some of the disciplines that were strengthened or modernized in the agreement having to do with intellectual property, with the digital economy, which is something that did not exist in the original. NAFTA, that opens up a lot of opportunities to invest, not just in your traditional sort of brick and mortar uh, manufacturing firms, which I think will continue to be strong within the North American uh, region, but also with these new sectors, the high tech sectors, you know, whether you're talking about investments in the digital economy, whether it's directly B2B, electronic commerce or business to consumers, but also just developing cloud computing, applied software that helps in the in Internet of Things, so it, it helps in this uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0. All of those elements, you know, help the production of high-tech products, but also hopefully an increase in investment or the attractiveness of investing in Mexico in sectors such as pharmaceutical, medical equipment, etc. That's why I think that there are great opportunities. I, I agree with Scott, but I also agree with Bill a little bit that in terms of the environment in the in the region, we really need to take positive policies to promote trade and investment in both our countries. It's still, I think uh, it, the coin is up in the air as far as I'm concerned as to what will be the position of the Biden administration on many of these trade policy issues, whether they will pursue a full uh, trade liberalization agenda or will they just sort of follow the line of what we have seen in the U.S. over the last few years of economic nationalism? Well, they're going to develop a new trade policy. They've said that, but they've ex described it only in the broadest possible terms of a policy that, that works for workers and doesn't provide all the benefits to large corporations. Putting flesh on that particular bone is going to take a while. And the president has been clear that this is not his highest priority. I think, you know, whether he wants it to or not, trade is going to intrude into his thinking. And particularly the relationship with Mexico and also Canada is going to intrude. Their neighbors, you know, he, his first call was to the Canadian prime minister. This is going to be an ongoing issue. The thing to know about Biden, though, is that he looks at relationships holistically and not transactionally. He's going to look at the the whole relationship with Mexico and I think is clearly going to be focused on improving it. But that's going to mean dealing with a lot of other aspects of the uh, of the relationship, which include immigration, which is kind of a, a difficult issue, as, as you know. I think Biden is going to pursue a a much more constructive and enlightened policy there than Trump did. And I think that will help pave the way to a broader cooperation and other issues. But they're going to be looking at the whole thing. It's not going to just be about, you know, what are we going to do about labor? It's a big picture. Let me ask you one question. Will Buy American include Buy North America? And by that, I actually mean Mexico as well, not only Canada. The, can the Canadians are, are working on that. They're probably the best people to do it, and uh, I think it's a priority for them. I imagine it's something the prime minister raised with the president when they talked. It makes perfect sense. The whole point of NAFTA in the beginning and the whole point of the USMCA, Lighthizer notwithstanding, is further integration of, of the three economies. And, you know, you could talk all you want about NAFTA's deficiencies, of which there are many. It really did that. 
You know, we'd integrated the economies in ways that had not happened before, and we really are increasingly one unit. Continuing to further that integration makes sense for all three countries. I don't think it's going to go away. It is not right now, I don't think, a Biden priority. I think the focus is on by American, meaning the United States, that is politically a better position, not economically. One of the problems that all countries have is the, the economists know what to do, but the politicians don't listen to them. That's, I think, true in Mexico, where the economists know what the right answer is and the politicians aren't paying any attention. And that's, that's true here, too. It's going to take some persuasion, I think, to get the Biden administration to think North American rather than think American. But, you know, there's two countries that have a stake in that, Canada and Mexico. They ought to work together on this. Well, yes. And look, they're facing, they're facing a very different environment of how goods are produced. We've had you know, 27, 28 years of, of basically open markets. And so what happens in the USMCA North America is we make things together and sell them to each other in the world. And because we make things together, we don't make them individually anymore, even, even in a country the size of the United States. And so I think as they investigate their principles for Buy America, they're going to find it's very difficult to source items that don't have a substantial Canadian and Mexican content, simply because of the reality of, of production networks that have been a result of U.S. policy or North American policy. Ken, just let me finish with this question. What do you think should be done in Mexico in order to avoid derailing the bilateral trade agenda and even more importantly, to try to take advantage of the new moves of the supply chains to North America and to position Mexico as a serious partner? Well, I definitely think Mexico has a lot to gain from this international movement that we're seeing in terms of nearshoring. I mean, companies that a year, a year and a half ago did not even refer to the term pandemic as something that was in their equation in terms of cost benefit as to where to locate. Now it's become a primary element of that, right? So, so shortening supply chains, bringing them closer to home can only mean good things for Mexico if we do our homework in Mexico and continue to be open to trade, transparent and open to investment. So on the one hand, I think doing the job within Mexico in terms of maintaining legal and regulatory certainty is, is, is something that can definitely help us. I think overall, we should Preach by example, if we want to have unrestricted access to the U.S. and Canada, which we have enjoyed for over 25 years, and we want to maintain it, and we want to ensure that despite the global sort of protectionist tendencies that we're seeing in developed countries, if we want to make sure that this doesn't happen in the U.S., that it doesn't happen in Canada, well, we should also do the same in our own country. So by complying with the USMCA, by enforcing its rules, we have more of a moral argument to go with the US and Canada and say, you should do this as well. You should not pursue protectionist policies. So I think the table is set really to have a major success in terms of the implementation of the USMCA in all three countries. But as always, it will depend not just on what we do on the international front, but what we do domestically. And I think certain change can take place in the Mexican government, for example, to have a clear national policy that all legal and regulatory modifications that take place in Mexico domestically should be aligned or take into consideration international standards and our international obligations. And I think that will restore investor confidence in the long term. Well, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Scott, Bill, the trade guys. It is, was really a privilege to be with you today. My name is Mariana Campero. 
Thank you very much for listening to Mexico Matters. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 